This is Vital Conversations with Dr. Lars Gunner. Hey, y'all. Today we have Sally Norton, and I wanted to give a bio. That way we know exactly where we're going to go with this conversation, and I'm really, really excited to have her on. Uh, Sally has a nutrition degree from Cornell and a master's degree in public health from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She has over 30 years in the public health space and health and wellness field, uh, involved in research, um, involved with several public health sectors. She's a writer, educator, speaker, and she specializes now in oxalate research. So I'm super excited to have her on. Thanks for coming on, Sally. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Uh, You, I first heard you about two years ago, I believe, and you were talking about oxalates and it fundamentally changed the way that I practice and the way that I advise nutrition. So I'm super honored to have you on. And let's do a quick primer. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself beyond that bio that I just gave? Well, yeah, I don't know where to go with that because I'm so touched by the fact that you learned about oxalate and actually used it to help your patients and clients. I mean, that's all I want is to support health care providers. I did this in my um, former life, running a big grant at UNC, an NIH grant to try to bring holistic principles and kind of a competency, at least in the lingo of holistic healing, so that when clients came to providers, whether they're pharmacists or doctors or nurses or dentists, and said, hey, I'm taking such and such supplement, or shouldn't I be doing Tai Chi, or you know, could massage help this, and what do I do if I have cancer? And they want to know about how to eat and all this. So I've worked in this field of trying to... Um, try to to expand the way healthcare providers are thinking with their patients and offer more options. And this option of oxalate is completely invisible to everyone in the healthcare field. It, It doesn't matter if you're a conventional person studying standard neurology as a medical doctor or you're a naturopath or homeopath. None of us know anything about it. So I, I, being a health geek and a nutrition geek, I was eating healthy foods ever since I was like three <laughs> into healthy foods. And my health is, wasn't good. And I had health problems as a kid. And they, I had to drop out of Cornell when I was getting my nutrition degree and get foot surgery. And sort of didn't, it took about eight years before I could walk without painkillers and orthotics. And But after that, I still couldn't even stand without shoes, side support. I couldn't do side-to-side motions like you would require for tennis. I couldn't run. Uh, and then much later, when I my whole health situation kind of collapsed before me, and I had to spend several years researching and doing more experiments on what to eat, that I realized that so many of my health problems, including my feet, my arthritis, my back pain, my sleep disorder, my digestive problems, my endometriosis and hysterectomy were connected to healthy eating, connected to my choice of growing and eating Swiss chard, sweet potatoes, greens, beans, you name it. I had damaged myself. I have injured myself with oxalate. And this was the biggest head slap anyone ever experienced. Here I am late in my life and career, about to turn 50, having this insight that despite all my connections in in healing and medicine, holistic healing and conventional medicine, all my friends and colleagues and know-how, I didn't know about this. I I was 
going, well, what is anyone else going to do? If I have a degree in nutrition and no holistic healing and integrative medicine and how to take care of myself and do take such good care of myself and I'm so sick and no one could help me, <laughs> there's got to be other people out here making the same mm-hmm. mistake of overloading healthy foods or even just the sort of any food that has this oxalic acid and oxalate crystals in it you'd never find an answer going to a healthcare provider because we haven't been taught about this. And whenever I inform people about oxalates, it is a, it is a dramatic paradigm shift for them. It's exactly what you described. Like they cannot wrap their heads around spinach or almonds or how black tea can actually be perpetuating. Like you said, joint pain, GI issues, sleep dysfunction. Um, so why don't we go into that? Like, what are oxalates and what, how are we making ourselves sick with these, with these healthy foods? Right. So the mind piece is huge. Like, wow, this is so different than what we're used to thinking about. We're told that plant foods are full of phytochemicals and are so good for us. And yet oxalate is an example of how plants defend themselves. It's a major tool that plants use for survival. So they produce a lot of it in some some families of plants are really great at producing a lot of it. And so there's the, the buckwheat family that has rhubarb in it. And there's the spinach family, spinach, beets, beet greens, and Swiss chard. Swiss chard is basically beet greens without a beet. These plants are really great at making oxalate. So oxalate comes as oxalic acid, which is a tiny little compound of just two. It's an organic acid with two carbons and four oxygens, lots of oxygens, which might explain why it creates a lot of oxidative stress. And plants use the oxalic acid to build calcium oxalate crystals. And then we end up eating both oxalic acid and these crystals and also little molecules because the acid binds minerals and creates other forms of oxalate is a salt. That's the mineral plus the acid together. These two ions hook up Um, So plants are doing this because they need it. They need it to manage their metabolism, to manage their calcium, to store calcium, to store carbon, to uh, create defensive chemicals. They can use it directly or turn it into peroxide to kill off funguses. The crystals make it uh, either directly damage insects and other things that try to eat them or become blocks of crystals around a seed to protect the seed or be a source of calcium needed later for germination. Trees put walls of little bricks of calcium in their bark uh, so the beetles don't bore through. And it's a way of getting rid of too much calcium because some soils are high in calcium and too much Mm -hmm. calcium in biology can be toxic as too little is you got to have just the right calcium super important for how cells work so the the calcium oxalate crystals helps the tree shed or kind of defecate calcium and creates a shield of bricks that keeps the the beetles from burrowing holes into their bark and it's so interesting as i've done my research i was interested shocked to hear that the major soot when you burn wood comes from the crystals of oxalate from the bark that's why you often strip bark off of wood when you burn it, because it the gunk in the bark makes for all this soot and gunk. Well, it turns out a lot of that is oxalate crystals. Wow. So it's it's everywhere. It's in the plant in the plant kingdom that we're eating, we're not eating. So we can be exposed to it. Sounds like everywhere. Yep. It's but- it's very um ubiquitous. And I think 
that's why some researchers and so on kind of throw up their arms like, well, you can't avoid oxalate, but that's completely untrue. It is highly mm-hmm. concentrated in some foods and it is almost none in others. That includes some plant foods like the cabbage family doesn't seem to need a lot of oxalate for their metabolism. And it's interesting that the cabbage family is basically invented by humans. Like probably on its <laughs> own, it wouldn't survive as well in nature, a, a head of cabbage mm-hmm. or a a cauliflower stalk couldn't really survive that well in nature. It's not loaded with oxalate. But the, the man-made vegetables are, are um, lower in oxalate. That's how we made it possible to eat a high vegetable diet is we used a lot of breeding and developed and invented the tomato and invented the cauliflower mm-hmm. and so on. So these the produce aisle it is an attempt to make plants edible. But it's an incomplete and, attempt, and, and we're a little bit unaware that there's still a lot of junk hanging around in certain foods we're eating. And, and of course, animal foods, animals don't need a lot of oxalate. Oxalate is not supposed to be an animal tissue. It's a toxin when it's hanging around in animal tissue. So animal tissue doesn't have oxalate. So, so milk and meats and eggs and so on don't have oxalate. Yeah, that's that's perfectly said. And whenever I... I ask patients, I'm like, what is, what does your diet look like? How are you eating well? The first thing that we'll cite every single time, oh, I eat my my vegetables, I eat my fruits and vegetables. So it's it's this this axiom that we have that we've adopted that like we think that we eat fruits and vegetables, so we're gonna be really, really healthy. Or if we like plant-based is crazy right now, I'm sure that you see it's and those are the patients that I find that are usually the sickest and the hardest to get well, not only because they're one dimensional in their thinking and nutrition, but also because they're, they're biochemically toxic. Um, so let's go into. And deficient because a plant-based healthy diet is usually too low in proteins and very low in bioaccessible, um, you know, nutrients because the, the plants have these cell walls that allow them to stand up straight that, block digestion and they have these chemicals Mm. and so on even phytonutrients like polyphenols interfere with digestive enzyme function so plants have a lot of ways of being fairly indigestible and the nutrients they provide are either hard to reach or in the wrong forms and usually people are eating plant-based aren't getting enough protein so you're a depleted toxic person if you've had a long-term plant-based diet. And so that makes it very hard for you to have the vitality and the resources within your metabolism to recover from a toxicity illness. And that's what oxalate poisoning is. And what, what does oxalate poison look like? What kind of clients are you seeing? What are, what are the most common ailments you're seeing at least now with this type of toxicity? Well, you know, it, it starts off with no symptoms at all. Your body does everything it can to not complain. And we see this, especially in the genetic form of this disease, because our metabolism makes a little bit of oxalate. It's a byproduct of basic processing of, of fats and proteins and, and carbohydrates and just what the liver and the cells have to do to survive we produce these precursors that become oxalate in the body. Um, so in the genetic form of this, people's enzymes are broken and they're producing way too much and it's quite toxic and they end up quite sick, need a new liver, new kidneys and don't live very long and usually die 
horrible death. But the interesting thing is they don't usually get diagnosed to very late in the game. They often are considered sort of asymptomatic or just have random aches and pains and little complaints and occasional kidney stones. And none of that stuff is being taken seriously. A kidney stone should, should be a flag for talking about diet. Yeah. For those of us who are dietarily protein, or, uh, dietarily poisoned with oxalate, so you might not have a lot of symptoms in the beginning, but there's a tendency, there's a pattern where digestive problems start occurring, neurological problems start occurring, which includes mood, uh, you know, being despondent or depressed or anxious, being irritable, mm-hmm. not quite being yourself, being a little bit. Um, hard to get along with or almost not even wanting to be around people. Uh, so yeah. there's all kinds of neurological things. It could be uncoordination. It can be pain, uh, any kind of inflammation issue. And then there's connective tissue issues. So uh, weak bones, arthritis, muscle pains, fibromyalgia. And so it's usually there's some digestive things going on. There's also the urinary tract involvement, any kind of what we call dysuria, which is, you know, jumpy bladder, irritable bladder, painful urination, nocturnal urination, frequent urination, uh, cloudy urine, which is crystal urea. This oxalate forms crystals in the body. And some people, they get very crystally mm-hmm. urine. Other people, not so much. Um, of course, any kidney stones or anything like that. So if there's urinary tract plus digestion, urinary tract plus irritation or whatever, you got to be thinking oxalate. Another thing that happens is chronic infection that does, doesn't respond to treatment. So if you see uh, someone prone to yeast infections and needs to treat that frequently or what looks like uh, UTIs or urinary tract infections or even systemic things like Lyme's and Epstein-Barr, these things are unresponsive and chronic because of the – probably because we didn't really study this. I mean, there isn't enough direct – research on these problems and the connection, how oxalate is promoting them, keeping them in place and making them impossible to resolve. But the the nice thing is when you get off the oxalate, all of a sudden you don't need monostat anymore. You don't have UTIs anymore. You're you're done with your Epstein-Barr and your Lyme's disease. It's quite something. You could be done with your fibrotic problems because oxalate leads to a lot of inflammation, tissue damage, which can lead into this inflammatory fibrotic conditions like endometriosis and so on, adhesions, you know, and that kind of sticky fascia that goes along with the fibromyalgia type patients. And all the things that you're actually listening to in throughout chiropractic school school and all my nutrition education, the only trace of oxalates was kidney stones. That was all we talk about, calcium oxalates, when in reality, all these autoimmune or these these symptoms of aging, really, it's toxicity. And that's why I tell people, like, getting older is not an option, but aging is. And how are we creating the internal biochemistry? Because we're built for health. But it's there needs to be a fundamental paradigm shift where we acknowledge, like, hey, what kind of diet are we primed to eat as opposed to just taking the programming that we've had for so long. Yeah, the programming starts so early. You know, you're bargained with as a three-year-old, you better eat your spinach if you want ice cream for dessert, or you can't go back outside to play if you don't eat your 
broccoli or whatever. And there's this big argument. And so we, we learn to eat vegetables to earn our junk food, to earn our treats and our desserts and our playtime. And it's like, like it's this passage, you must have this awful stuff. And, but kids are naturally repelled by oxalates and don't like spinach. <laughs> there's not many children mm-hmm. who naturally gravitate to spinach. There may be a reason mm-hmm. for that. And yeah, so and- we're, everyone who comes into the field of healthcare, especially in nutrition or holistic healing practices, comes to their practice with that bias. Everyone who ever wrote a textbook or taught a class in nutrition comes with the eat your broccoli before you get your dessert bias. We all have been trained for the last 400 years that plants are okay to eat and moral to eat and superior in all these ways and have magic goodness in them. And that has made us deaf to the facts that toxicologists have been trying to point out, that kidney researchers have been pointing out, that the oxalate researchers have been, uh, you know, pointing out, they write up a case study, somebody dropped dead from rhubarb or spinach or sorrel soup, and it was oxalate that did it. And they say, hey, you know, we really got to watch this oxalate thing, but nobody picks it up. So a lot of individual researchers Mm. and, and clinicians, highly respected persons are writing, hey, oxalate matters. And yet the institutions are of textbook writing and educating students and the clinical internships we go through, nobody has any awareness of this. It just hasn't been trickled down. So in our textbooks, you get like a one inch piece. It's like two inches wide and one inch deep that says, well, chocolate and tea bind calcium because of the oxalates. So you shouldn't have them with dinner or you should put (laughs) calcium and dairy products in the meal. I mean, I think this is one reason that the ignoring of oxalate is one reason why nutrition has traditionally and still does emphasize dairy products and, and high calcium diets because you need a lot of calcium to help, and it can only help to a small degree, lower the toxicity of the oxalates that we're eating. And then when we even look at people that, the, what the countries that consume the most amount of dairy, like milk, dairy products, they have the weakest bones, don't they? Yeah, you know, I'm, I, I don't data. know that we have all the right facts about, you know, mm-hmm. that. I, the dairy is a traditional food that human beings seem to do okay on for a long time. And, mm-hmm. you know, raw, fresh dairy is a, is a valuable food. Mm-hmm. And if you can get it and if you can tolerate it, great. But I think what's happening now is that we have so damaged our immune system and digestive tract that dairy is less digestible by more people because more of us are sick and brittle much more than we used to be. Mm -hmm. And I I know until I broke once IBS popped in after some years of vegetarianism and veganism, and then too many undercooked Mm -hmm. beans gave me, switched me over to post-infectious irritable bowel. And I've never been the same since. But before that, I was Mm -hmm. fine. And I could eat any combination of anything I wanted and never noticed any digestive distress of any kind. Always had a flat, happy stomach that could eat tons of food. I was a big eater as a teenager. Um, So we break at some point. We break our biotic health. We break our metabolic resilience. We start damaging the way the uh, endothelial cells work. We start epigenetically changing how cells work. And oxalate is a great um, player in this sort of toxic effects that we're getting from our diet. Mm-hmm. We literally can turn your blood vessels, muscle cells into bone producing cells and calcify your whole 
vascular system, or at least critical pieces of it, by eating too much oxalate all the time. Cardiac symptoms have long been known to be a part of oxalate problems. And since, uh, you know, this illness called oxalate toxicity was first identified and described in 1842. And when it was, it's been around a long time. And now it it popped on the scene because in the early 1800s, they had developed a whole set of rhubarb cultivars that they could grow in greenhouses and started building greenhouses and creating a whole industry of growing rhubarb. And it became quite popular amongst the people who could afford to have this food. And that revealed the oxalic acid diatheses, as it was initially called, this tendency to get sick with oxalate with when during rhubarb season, you would get sick and you would have Mm -hmm. digestive distress and or huge mood changes where you'd become anxious and jumpy and erratic in behavior. And you'd have some pains and so on. Some, some cases it was looked like obstructive bowel. So they looked like they were going to die from obstructive bowel. Because you get part of what happens is oxalates grabbing electrolytes, right? So it's grabbing calcium, mm-hmm. magnesium, and other electrolytes. It's causing cells to spill electrolytes. So when you're digestive tract, you need nerves to function, to turn on and off muscles. So peristalsis and uh, sphincter control works for proper defecation. When you mess up electrolytes, mm-hmm. you mess up both muscles and nerves, which are critically their function really depends on the right electrolyte at the right place at the right time. And when you start messing that up, you start getting spasms. And you can get these really severe contractile spasms that create like IBS cramping. You can get vasospasms as well, where you get Renaud syndrome and other kinds of vasos, you know, which can lead to stroke and problems with the, both the brain and the heart. But these spasms will um, really mess up your digestive function. And some people will get chronic Mm. diarrhea, others will get chronic constipation. And I think there's a process where it's almost like you get fibromyalgia of the peristaltic muscles and, you know, you start breaking these things at a level where it's hard to get them back to the way they should be. And and that makes total sense. I think that that just taught me a bunch when I see patients that are particularly tough as far as spine cases their inflammatory processes are hijacked. Like you cannot get them out of acute pain or when you do get them out of acute pain, they're neurologically damaged. And so they will have uh, neurological deficits or neuritis way longer than, than you would typically see. And so it's, they've lost coordination. They've lost the fluid dynamics. They, they can't coordinate what's actually going on. And that actually Yeah, it's sense. really, there is a um, point where you've done enough tissue damage either with with epigenetic alterations and how the cells are working or a loss of myelin oxalate is is implicated in myelin loss it collects in nerve tissue it's implicated in parkinson's disease and dementia um, it, neuropathies are pretty common when you uh, in, in other kinds of oxalate poisoning that are non-food oxalate poisoning well documented um, because there are other substances mm-hmm. that can become oxalate in the body. So ethylene glycol is a antifreeze that people use in their car and it's a heat transfer agent. Sometimes people take that by mm-hmm. mistake and, and have ethylene glycol poisoning, or they'll take it for suicide. And the ones that survive wow. it, 
uh, end up with a lot of neurological deficits, Bell's palsy and inability to speak and all kinds of problems that last a long time. And this is because the the liver turns ethylene glycol into oxalate, some amount of it. And then the oxalate starts collecting in tissues as crystals. And in two or two to three weeks after the the incident of taking the ethylene glycol, they start getting all these neuropathies as the immune system tries to get rid of the crystals. So it's the actually the body's response to the buildup of oxalate deposits in the body that creates chronic damage because you have chronic immune engagement and that immune engagement continues to cause disruptions in electrolytes, loss of nutrients, and uh, damage to tissues, including the nerves. Wow. And going into how can people identify this? Like you're you're saying a bunch of things symptomatically or diagnostically, but do we have tests for oxalates? Do we have scans we can do? How can we... Yeah, well, it's really interesting because we want to do high tech testing. We want to test urine. We want to test blood. We want, we're sure we can just go to the doctor and say, Hey, could you order me the oxalate blood test? You know, no, forget that. That's futile. That's not going to work. We can test urine, but we're not very good at it. You need to do it correctly. The oxalate coming out in the urine varies all the time, and we don't understand why. It's circadian, it's this and that. If you're if you're eating a lot of oxalate, you might have low oxalate in the urine for lots of reasons. So you can't even get a bead on the average oxalate until you've done nine urine tests. And this is like nine 24-hour urine tests. Wow. And a 24-hour urine test doesn't show a lot of information you want to have either. So that's not the greatest thing. But if, if you know the picture of the illness, if you've got any of those flags like urinary tract stuff, unexplained inflammation, unexplained infections, unexplained pain syndromes, then you should inquire about diet. And if anyone's been eating a standard American diet full of peanut butter, peanuts, potato chips, potatoes, chocolate, um, what else? Beans, almond milk, nuts generally, that kind of thing. If they eat like that, like if they're magically not just living on roast beef (laughs) and they're actually eating the junk that we like to eat, including things like plantain chips and banana chips. This stuff is quite high. And there's not that many foods that are hugely high, but we tend to eat them a lot. So if you have that pattern, then you can start thinking, all right, let's, let's think about blood values of creatinine. Is it slightly elevated? Is it in the high end of normal? Yes, that's bad. That could be oxalates. Are the white counts or red counts a little on the low side or genuinely low? That could be oxalates because oxalate collects in bone marrow and affects the production of blood cells. It can actually lead to hemolytic anemia too because oxalate interferes with um, enzyme function in cells and the red blood cells don't have the sort of mitochondrial piece. So they need this kind of simple production of ATP and that gets blocked by oxalate and then they get their, there's, management of sodium in the red blood cell gets lost because the cells have low energy and the cells start exploding because the sodium inside the cells is stuck and the water pulls in there and that blows the cells apart. So if you have chronic anemia that doesn't respond well, that could be a sign of the enzyme interference in the bloodstream. And it could also be a sign that the bone marrow is having trouble helping the body replenish cells. And so cellular fatigue, cellular energy problems is a major issue with oxalates because 
there's at least three, maybe five enzymes that your cells need to generate ATP energy or your body, the cells need to generate enough glycogen and, and glucose. Those are interfered with by oxalates. So you get a lot of fatigue problems with your metabolism, which is why you don't have the vitality to, to beat this problem anymore because you're, you end up with this broken enzyme system in your cells. So if you if you break your mitochondria and break your energy systems, that's if you don't have any fuel, you're over, you're done. You know that is aging, that is illness that's hard to come back from. So that partly explains why the recovery from this is a long, protracted process. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if I'm and, answering your question. <laughs> you are. I mean, you just keep going. Um, yeah, I'm so noticing... looking for anemia, looking for low counts, looking for uh, high creatinine levels, uh, these things that are off a little bit, a slightly low normal estimated GFR, the glomerular filtration rate. So those are the serum tests. You know, if, you, if someone has happened to have a, a, a urine test and they happen to catch it on a day where oxalate was high, always take that seriously. That's always mm-hmm. a, a sign. Yeah, and... People are doing these smoothies now in the mornings that they're everything you just said, where they're doing spinach, almonds, almond milk, peanut butter, chocolate. Like they're doing this toxic overload in the morning and they wonder why they have blood sugar handling issues in within two to three hours. Crash. Mm-hmm. Major crash. Yep. And they're like, well, it's my healthy smoothie in the morning. It's how I start. And I feel really good. I'm like, yeah, you feel really good for an hour. Like, what is it doing to to your system long-term? We're starting to get autoimmune problems. Yeah. And that first hour is a little sugar boost because they always got to put some sweetener to cover up the taste of the spinach. And if you're combining chocolate and spinach, that's disgusting. So you have to throw in fruit and powders. And they also like to throw in collagen, which uh, too much collagen it, it provides a lot of the amino acids that can, in, if they're oversupplied, become oxalate in the body as well. So an excess of more than like seven or eight grams of gelatin type collagen could start increasing oxalate production inside the body as well. Wow. Yeah. What are things we can do to start correcting oxalate toxicity aside from just the withdrawal? Are there nutrients that we that help to bind, that help us excrete? What kind of detox pathways are we looking at? Well, like what, okay, what can we so do? the detox pathways is your kidney. Mm-hmm. Your liver does not detox oxalate. It makes oxalate. So we don't boost detox pathways. What we do is we support kidney function. And the kidneys need enough minerals, enough water, enough salt, and time off. You just don't eat around the clock. But calcium, giving calcium without vitamin D is a useful binder of oxalates. We use it uh, in the gut. When the kidneys are stressed, which they are, and you get acidity from that stress from the kidneys, that turns on these excretors in the colon. So if you have calcium in the colon, that helps to catch the oxalate that the body's trying to get rid of through the colon. And some people, as the body is undoing this accumulation of oxalate in the body, some people are prone to this colon excretion route and are good at it. Other people are good at skin excretion and they'll come up with rashes and boils and weird stuff and they'll start pushing out crystals and junk out of their skin. Some people report like white dust coming off their skin or little bits of grit coming out, or sometimes in a hot, sweaty yoga class or a sauna, sometimes you can even feel the sort of prickly feeling in the, the 
sweat glands. So some people are good at the skin side. And then some of us have fabulous kidneys that just pour out lots of crystals and cloudy urine, cloudy urine, like the kidneys can put up, put up, put up and never get kidney stones. It's amazing. And I think most people's kidneys are designed to not get kidney stones. It's only like 12% of us who get the kidney stones on our high oxalate diet not getting kidney stones or not getting kidney trouble is no evidence whatsoever that you don't have a oxalate problem. It's only that percentage of us who either wear out our kidneys from too many years of smoothies and peanut butter sandwiches and chocolate chips, or, you know, just genetically not as good at making these compounds that help prevent kidney stone development. So you do want to prevent kidney stones by getting, keeping the pH of the urine neutral or slightly alkaline by taking lemon juice, potassium citrate, any citrate, we'd like to take calcium in the citrate form because citrates help to low, to raise pH or lower acidity in the body. And that supports kidney function. Getting enough salt will help support water excretion through the kidneys and help support uh, correcting electrolyte problems. Potassium is super important. Uh, we seem to spill potassium Usually we have thin bones or thinning bones because when we eat oxalate, it takes calcium out of the bloodstream, which turns on the parathyroid hormone, which turns on bone dissolving so you can replace the missing calcium with bone minerals. And so you're releasing calcium little by little over the years and eventually you'll get osteopenia and getting enough salt and potassium along with other minerals helps us stop the loss of bones and start rebuilding bones and we can start reversing. That's an easy one to fix. The bones will heal themselves. Eventually the crystals and the marrow will come out and your blood cell counts will get better. Um, but we need to get enough potassium, salt, calcium, magnesium is important for many reasons. It's another binder, but it also prevents kidney stones because the body would prefer to pee out oxalate ions which are negatively charged and oxalate with magnesium bound to it because the magnesium oxalate doesn't clump as much into big stones like the calcium does. So if magnesium's there, it helps to prevent, as does citrates, and citrates are released because you're eating lemon juice and citrate supplements and enough potassium to keep the pH right. So those are some really critical things like addressing the acidity in the urine, addressing the acidity in the body. So when you're feeling really sick, a lot of the times the symptoms are because of this acidity surge. So things like Alka-Seltzer gold or juicing a lemon, taking some bicarbonate, potassium bicarbonate or sodium or both, these are all great ways to address the symptoms and keep the pH of the body so that the kidneys are in a better situation for removing oxalate safely without as much damage and without the risk of kidney stones. I love it. And I love the way you said it because we've gotten so focused on clinical lab tests and collecting information and trying to extrapolate and have this, this sexy way of, of naming something when really it comes down to how well is someone living? How can we move the needle in the right direction? And what are their symptoms getting better as their function getting better, as opposed to just being so directly focused on lab tests, because lab tests can be really, really deceptive or completely miss the mark. And there is no one blood test that, that tells you that you're healthy. It's not like we can test cholesterol or just your electrolytes or your blood cell count and say you're healthy or not healthy. It's the aggregation, but really how well are you living? That's what it really comes down to. So I yeah, like you, you know, that. it's really an art of medicine to understand 
possible sources of disease. And of course, too much oxalate is rarely in the minds of a clinician these days, but I'm hoping to change that. Um, but then, you know, really listening to the patient and seeing this pattern. And so with oxalate, there's this pattern of lots of weird complaints that haven't been responsive to treatments and that hang around and seem to get a little better and are periodic and come and go and are annoying and, and start to become disabling. That is the pattern of toxicity and deficiency. Oxalate creates toxicity and deficiency. It creates a chronic toxicity that becomes very complex illnesses and very serious illnesses that can be life-threatening. It can shorten the lifespan with an early stroke, early heart disease, all kinds of autoimmune things, and probably cancer. Uh, so it's surprising to people, but if you knew the physiology, there is one marker that may become a thing, and that's glyoxal levels in the body. It's a measure of oxidative stress. Glyoxal is the precursor okay. to oxalate. And when we have high blood sugars, we eat a lot of um, polyunsaturated fats and salad oils and nuts. Um, we have, you know, sort of the diabetic metabolic syndrome, obesity pattern. Glyoxal levels are high. There's a lot of oxidative stress in the system, a lot of metabolic um, stress, including low nutrient levels. When you have low Bs, especially B1 and B6, your body produces more. You have high glyoxal, more of that is turning into oxalate. So your body's producing more. You have more inflammation and the cells are producing more oxalate. So you also, while you're eating spinach to correct your obesity and so on, and you're raising this huge amount that you're, is getting in your body, you're also metabolically producing more at the same time. And unfortunately, obesity leads to leaky gut and you get much higher levels of oxalate coming into the body instead of the normal 10% of what you're eating. It could be 20, 30, 50, even 60% of the oxalate you eat can start getting absorbed to, to increase the amount you're absorbing because you're obese or have leaky gut. That's profoundly toxic. And that, that really concerns me because did you see the, the article that came out that said the average amount of weight gain during all this closure was 21 pounds and then for millennials it was 41 pounds no kidding that seems that seems almost impossible in a year to gain 40 pounds in a year i i i can't fathom it it's it's the inactivity and the alcohol and so now i'm i'm thinking in my mind now that you just said all these leaky gut things and and the absorption as far as the, the gap junctions being blown out like that really concerns me for the health explosion that we're going to see over the next year, five years, 10 years, and what's going to happen to these? I mean, everyone in the millennial generation is pretty young, the late 20s to mid mid to late 30s. Like, what's it going to look I'm like? I'm very concerned that we've been pushing high oxalate foods for 100 years, but this last 15 years with the push on the dark chocolate and the spinach and the smoothies is creating a tsunami in a world that secretly eats potato chips and and all kinds of junkola like that, and, and including these foods that give us metabolic distress, like the vegetable oils and the, you know the soybean oil and everything, and eating off chocolate—I mean, off plastic—coming out of the microwave, and then you know the stress of COVID—that—that's an excuse for more potato chips and junk food and chocolate. And and yeah, I'm really concerned. I'm concerned about people who want to have healthy children. I'm concerned about children being raised in this environment, being pushed to eat spinach and still getting to have their potato chips and chocolate because it's so okay now. <laughs> oh man. Uh, what, let's, let's talk about the good things to eat. 
let's let's pivot. Um, I know from what you share on Instagram, it, it's, it looks like a very animal-based diet. I abide by that as well. I have an almost two-year-old. She basically only eats ground beef wow. and steak. Like that's her whole diet. So and liver, uh, and she loves it. So let's let's talk about what are the good things that are health promoting. That yeah. Are healing. Well. It's important that you get enough fat and protein and, and clean fats and proteins that are easy to digest do come from the animal foods. And so that's if you're if you're willing to eat animal foods, red meats and, and eggs and even dairy foods, especially if you can get a two raw forms is really lovely foods to have. They're traditional human foods. And so ideally that's in the diet. But you don't have to eat meats to benefit from learning about oxalates, you can still be a vegan and still switch from black beans to black eyed peas and use the pea family like the chickpeas and so on instead of the soybeans and the black beans and the the white beans from the great northerns and so on. Those are really high, but the chickpeas and um, black eyed peas, for example, are low. You just have to know to soak them for three days to deal with the phytates and lectins in them. Those are other plant chemicals that are trouble. And high heat them a couple minutes on pressure cooking to help um, break down those lectin proteins, which can be quite gut damaging, et cetera. So there are, um, there are plenty of things in the vegetable kingdom that have low oxalate, and that includes the cabbage family, uh, several fruits. But uh, if you're really sick, you're not going to do well living on cabbage and cauliflower and, and beans. You're, you're going to have to do something more dramatic than that and, and really do a, a gut healing diet. And for some people, it means taking stepping back from anything with much fiber in it and eating a low fiber diet mm-hmm. sometimes. So depending on the situation, you know, there's a lot of ways to go. There is no one low oxalate diet. What, what you do to switch to better foods as you learn about what the high oxalate foods are. I have a list in a beginner's guide of high oxalate foods and then a list of foods we know are low oxalate because they've been tested enough. And then you start figuring out how to substitute those. And it, and that's a good place to start because if you go all the way down to zero, like if you try to be like the two year old who can live on steaks and not eat any oxalate, I mean, think of a beautiful life without much oxalate. I wish I could start over and be two again. Oh my God, I want to sign up to be your child. But, you know, we can, we do better if we don't run to that diet because the the body's reading how much oxalate you're eating. The gut and the bloodstream is aware of oxalate levels and aware of all, it's incredibly smart. These epithelial cells that line the gut and endothelial cells of the of the uh, vascular system really making a lot of decisions. And if you drop it really low, the body goes, ah, a break. It must be winter time. The vegetables are all gone. We're just going to live on the hunt and not have So the body's ready for winter. It's been waiting for this no vegetable winter for a long time. And if you give it that no vegetable winter, you're going to start spewing oxalates out of your system and make yourself more toxic. When you stop eating oxalates, the levels of oxalate in your urine and blood will go up because the tissues start puking out oxalate. They want to get rid of it. And you don't want to trigger this clearing, this heavy duty kind of unregulated, crazy, excited clearing all over the body. You want a slow release from tissues as you can manage because toxicity is all about the dose. And if you start dosing your vascular system and your kidneys with 
high amounts of internal oxalates being released from tissues, you will feel terrible. You will increase the vasculitis and vascular damage. You'll increase inflammation in the body. You risk kidney stones and more urinary tract damage. So you want to go slowly down to more of a normal level of oxalate consumption, which is probably about a fifth or a tenth of what you're eating now, but still has some in there. So by not worrying too much about going all meat-based initially is a better approach. Mm -hmm. So you take your time at it, you know, save chocolate for the last thing to remove from start with the spinach and the buckwheat and the whole wheat and the bran and the kind of yucky foods that you never really liked anyway. And then you can work your way away from your chocolate addiction and you'll start feeling better neurologically It'll be, you won't be so dependent on foods like chocolate. And that, and that makes total sense to me. And that, and that makes total sense to me. As and, far as and change, as far as change in general, change, humans so don't do well with change. So if we can actually create the language around like, okay, let's start small. These are the things you, let's give you things you can have that can be different as opposed to take everything away and have you only eat right. animal based. I've like, never wanted to be uh, it's, advising it's, people what to eat ever. And even though I've had a degree in nutrition, I certainly never want to be the takeaway gal. Um, but it, it is yeah. important to know that people need permission to eat meat right now. Everyone is saying meat is ruining you and the planet and you're going to drop dead of a heart attack and nothing could be further from the truth. But we're continue to be misinformed about stuff, and it's hard to survive that emotionally. The whole culture says if you eat a lot of fatty steak, you're just an idiot, you know, and you're selfish and you hate the planet. And it's just the I think the mental social piece of this is the harder part of all of it. It's like making sense of this disease and then making sense of, oh, meat is okay. That's a that's a big conversation. I think eventually that starts making sense to people because it's quite simple to imagine our hunter gathering days of us taking down woolly mammoths, this gigantic kind of elephant creature needs to be cut up and roasted and nobody's ordering out for sweet potato fries. They're fine with just woolly (laughs) mammoth meat. It's so delicious. Human beings really enjoy roasted meat. So it's, it comes to us naturally if you give yourself permission but yeah, gradual is good for lots of reasons. And just getting your mind and your lifestyle around it, it's not a big emergency. Although once you, if you recognize that you have all these problems and that you've been overdoing oxalate, part of you never wants to touch a spinach anything again. And, and that's okay. But And I do groups to try to help people work through this mentally and, and instrumentally knowing what they can do and what are their options. And diet is one of those that's so intimately connected to us. It's it's a relationship in and of its own. Like you said, it's it's a social, emotional. It's even a spiritual. It's a, it's a physical. And all of us are pretty addicted to food as it is too, because we're using it for other other things other than nutrition. So it's learning how to put it delicately, and also creating that awareness of hey, meat meat can be good. Fish is good. Plants let's let's raise the question let evolutionary speaking what were we doing with with plants they were survival foods like it it wasn't something that we were hanging our hat on or building a tribe off of it was the hunt we'd use plants to that thatch a roof and you know that kind of thing (laughs) (laughs) um going on with this we're seeing toxicity we're seeing some of the deficiencies 
Aside from electrolytes and, and B vitamins, are you seeing any other nutrient deficiencies with oxalate overload that might look a little bit more apparent well, to some, I, some people? Thiamine of the, among the Bs, thiamine is probably the most prevalent thing that's getting us into higher vulnerability with oxalate that's really common to be thiamine deficient. So I, I'm really concerned about the thiamine piece with folks. And of course, B6, those those are especially important and you you end up deficient in them. And once you're deficient in them, because oxalate helps make you deficient in them, especially B6, but both of them. And you need them to help restart your mitochondria that are being wounded because of oxalates grabbing their cofactors of enzymes and actually hanging out in enzymes and preventing them from working. So getting a lot of decent quality B vitamins is helpful and all kinds of minerals and electrolytes. And then you know, then I think it's more of an individual thing about the fat soluble vitamins, because really there's the Bs are the, and, and vitamin C is a whole conversation. I guess that's the big conversation <laughs> with oxalate because vitamin C degrades into oxalate, just spontaneously kind of degenerates. I, I think even hanging around in a bottle of a supplement, there's probably some oxalic acid in there that used to be vitamin C. So when we take more than we need and it's not doing what it should be doing inside of a white blood cell or in the, the cells of the body, it's becoming oxalate in the body. So people who are mega dosing on C and taking a half gram, a gram or 10 grams a day are poisoning the cells with oxalate. <laughs> Your body can barely use as much as 400 milligrams a day. There's only so many white blood cells that need vitamin C. So if you're taking more than 250 milligrams, it's probably a waste and it's probably increasing oxalate. But that doesn't mean zero vitamin C. We need basically the RDA. I mean, the RDA is about 10 times what metabolically they think we need. but And it's helpful with the, a deranged immune system to be getting some vitamin C. Um, so I like to see people getting about 100 milligrams of C today, which is easy to do in diet. If you're eating lettuce and some pineapple. It just doesn't take that much. And if you're juicing a lemon every day, there's 30 milligrams right there. So juice a lemon, have some lettuce and a little pineapple, and you're probably covered. But if not, if you're like the two-year-old and you have an oxalate problem, supplementing small amounts of vitamin C is helpful, particularly when the immune system is razzed up and doing some clearing work because people go through these episodic, sometimes it feels like all the time, but they go through these symptom patterns that are quite hard to take as the immune system is busy digging out old crystals and cleaning you up. And that's a good time to make sure you're getting vitamin C. Mm -hmm. As to the fat-soluble vitamins, there's not a lot of research there. Sometimes I think getting enough fat-soluble vitamins helps to balance the immune system and helps to keep it from being a little bit out of control. The more we can get nutrients in the system, the mm -hmm. better the immune system will be working. Is there, any research right now that you're is there any research right now that you're conducting on oxalates or that you know is going on with oxalates? Well, there's a group down in the University of Alabama that's been expanding with younger researchers who I think are going to take this in, a, in more than a kidney direction. And the reason we grew up clinically in our training as health professionals thinking only kidney stones are oxalates is because that's where all the research and a focus and brain power has been on the kidney stone problem for the last 70 years. But I think we're about to bust out of that. Mm -hmm. So hopefully we'll have research there. I'm hoping too in the future that we'll become a voice 
for funding for research on this disease to, to try to document that it's occurring and what's going on and to try to understand it because no one is studying those of us who are oxalate injured and that's i'd like to see that happening in the future i love it and this was amazing so much good information and my tiny human just came home <laughs> um, <laughs> That's what, what are three things someone could do today that would actually help with oxalate toxicity? Well, um, learn about which foods you like that happen to be high oxalate and start learning about substitutes for lower oxalate. Um, consider taking a lemon every day. Definitely steer away from things that create free radicals in the body like vegetable oils. Keep your blood sugar down. And most of all, Stay in motion so that you do have blood flow in your system because oxalate really affects your blood flow, but keep a lot of slack in your schedule so you can get your downtime, you can get your naps, you can rest. You don't push yourself to overdo, but make sure that you're in motion every day. I love that. And how can people find you? Where can they search you, find your information? Do you have an amazing website, by the way? It's so informative. Oh, good. That was the idea that she could learn a bunch of stuff for free on my website, which is sallykaynorton.com. And in there, you can sign up to attend a support group. You can get a beginner's guide. You can get a cookbook that has over 180 recipes. So if you're concerned about how to cook what vegetables, there's also a lot of beginner's tips in the cookbook. So those would be good places to start. I'm on Instagram and, uh, you can check out, there's more information on Instagram and people share their stories there. So if you read through some of the comments and stuff, you'll you'll hear some others and start connecting with other people. So if you think you have this problem, you may be able to find a friend through Instagram or through my support groups and, and tap into a tribe of support. I love it. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. You've fundamentally changed the way that I practice. And I can tell you firsthand, it's helped several, several dozen patients over the last short term, last year that I found out about all this. So keep doing what you're doing. And thank you for taking the time to come on. Same to you. I'm very proud of you for that work that you're doing. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. Thank you all for tuning in with an awesome interview with Sally Norton. She was a wealth of information and a genuine light. And I know she's just trying to spread great words and her resources on her website. I could not speak more highly of. So visit her on Sally Norton. Um, follow us on all major podcast platforms. We took a little hiatus, but we're going to have some awesome guests for you coming up over the next few weeks. Um, we're on all major podcast platforms, Spotify, uh, Apple anchor, um, and then give us a follow on, on Instagram at Dr. Lars Gunner, G U N N A R. Um, I post all kinds of clinical information, things on spine, nutrition, health, and wellness. I just want you to unlock freedom in your own life. And until next time, this has been Vital Conversations.